The InfoSec world continues to dissect Bloomberg's big hardware implant story. And guess what? We're no different. Speaking of that, we'll talk to Stephen Chen from PFP Cybersecurity, who gives us some insights on how hardware attacks can be detected. That, social media security, mage cart resurfacing, and more. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for October 12th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jenna Daniel. Greg was chomping at the bit to talk about Bloomberg. Uh, yeah, this has consumed my week, consumed my reporter's week. Uh, everybody wants to talk about it. So yeah, I have a, more than a few thoughts on the story. And that's going to be the theme this week as we talk to Stephen Chen in our feature interview. Stephen is the founder of PFP Cybersecurity, a company that monitors the signals hardware gives off in order to attack attacks. Stephen has been very busy since the story has dropped, so he gets into his view of this type of attack. But before we get to that, let's talk about the news. So Bloomberg's bombshell story about an alleged compromise of the supply chain has been all anyone's talking about, including DHS, which backed Apple and Amazon's denials. Apple also doubled down on its fierce rebuttal to the story. An Apple executive telling Congress the company was mystified by Bloomberg's reporter's claim of an FBI investigation into the hack. The noise continued into the week when Rob Joyce, a top NSA official, described great frustration at the upheaval and confusion caused by the report. Quote, I have grave concerns about where this has taken us, Joyce said Wednesday at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. I worry that we're chasing the shadows right now. Greg, what are we chasing? Um, the truth, I guess. I know that sounds, you know, uh, a little bit sanctimonious here, but uh, this story really has, I don't want to say that it's fallen apart, but there are huge holes in this story. And I think, I, I want to talk about the angle here of Rob Joyce going out in front of the public and saying what he did. Let's set up the scenario here. You have a highly decorated NSA official who has been doing this stuff for two decades. Coming from the NSA, an organization that doesn't talk about anything. I mean, we've foiled their kids' guides and they've been like, we can neither confirm or deny the existence of that. Yet Rob Joyce, this highly decorated official, is going out in front of the public, in front of reporters, and going, anybody hear anything on this? Because we got nothing. I mean, that to me shows that what was reported in the Bloomberg story is a lot further than what is actually happening. I mean, again, I, I, I have to reiterate this. A high-level NSA official is out in front of the public saying, we haven't seen anything on this. That should tell everybody what really is going on here. And what's going on here doesn't look to be what's been reported in the Bloomberg story. So my guess is the Bloomberg story is more about it's plausible for this to happen. But the other side of that is if you wanted to make this story seem like it didn't happen, like that's exactly what you come out and say. See, and I, I kind of disagree with that because I feel like the NSA has been here before. There's just right. been tons of stuff. Let, let's just take the Snowden disclosures, for instance. All of that is right in front of their face. It's literally the documents. These are classified documents. And the NSA has been very reticent to even acknowledge that those documents exist. Like, what world are we living in? Like, okay, like... This is out there. Let's talk about these right. documents. And the NSA has been like, 
no, 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 no. The shadow brokers thing. There's been very, very little said publicly by the NSA on the shadow brokers front. And those are those are stories that have the same ramifications of what has been reported by Bloomberg here. And yet with this story, we have, sort again, of. the NSA officials going, we haven't seen anything on this. But if this were to be true, I mean, this is just catastrophic. This is every single, potentially every single national security secret, um, every company secret out there, you know, potentially is you know, stolen. Right. Well, not necessarily stolen because I think that you would see that or traffic. Or potentially stolen. Right. So, and, and that's the thing here that is, that's the big hang up with this story. Everything in the Bloomberg story is plausible from a technological perspective, from a security perspective, from an espionage perspective. All of it is, is plausible. The factuality, if that's even a word, this story has, has tied me up so much I'm making up words now. Um, the facts of this story have have not been corroborated. And there was another story later this week that talked about firmware being manipulated and that there were network interface controllers that were changed and that they were found on a U.S. telecom, which... That story also caused some problems, but that story wasn't the big hack story. So th there's just a lot of muddying with what is true and what is hypothetical and what is plausible here. And, and the gray areas here are where this story is living right now. So it's hard for me to say that, oh, well this is the way that the NSA would operate if this were true. We don't right. we don't know. No idea. We don't know. We absolutely don't know where where we've had the NSA react differently when we know that stories are true with the shadow brokers. We know that there is a tool set that was developed by NSA hackers floating out there publicly that you and I can google and play with until, you know, until the cows come home. With the Snowden documents there are plenty of websites out there where we can point to the NSA insignias on this, and the NSA doesn't want to talk about it. There is there is no real factual evidence here other than 17 unnamed sources saying, yes, this exists, and yet the NSA has said, uh, yeah, about those sources, uh, we don't know. We can't find anything. Like I think that, that it's just incredibly damning when Rob Joyce is out there saying – Eh. Well, in those 17 sources, too, I mean, it's it's a very different thing if I asked you, is this possible, right? Right. That could have been right. one of those. And there have been other reports where, uh, on other podcasts, where, uh, shout out to Patrick Gray, Risky Business, who did a good job dissecting this, where he talked to some of the sources in that story, and the one source said, yeah, I talked about this in terms of what could potentially happen or what is plausible and it looked like what ended up in the story was the pl that, that plausible story somehow became fact. I don't know how that became fact. I'm not the <laughs> reporters. I don't work for Bloomberg. I'm not necessarily saying that they were the ones that flipped that. It could have been some bad sourcing. That happens. At the same time, that's pretty damning again when another source comes out and says, no, this is what I said plausible 
could plausibly happen, not what is actually happening. That's a wide chasm, and that's a big, big problem for the uh, veracity of the story. So that's, uh, again, I, I'm so hung up on Rob Joyce going out in front of everybody and saying, hey, if you see something, say something. Like, that does not Just happen kind of with amazing. NSA officials. Yeah. Right. If it's DHS officials, of course. that's Because that's what DHS does from a cyber perspective. They want companies to say, hey, we're seeing stuff, and DHS will go and disseminate it to everybody. DHS hasn't seen anything. The FBI, the FBI director was out in front. And he gave an interesting quote in front of Congress when uh, a senator asked him about the story. He was like, well, don't believe everything you read, which is also a a pretty staggering thing to say for the FBI because the FBI says we can neither confirm or deny anything. And they've been saying that for decades now on just about any investigation, let alone cyber investigations. So when you have top-level government people that would be in the know on this out there saying, yeah, we don't, we're we're at a loss. Not just, no, this isn't true. We're at a loss for information. That framing of it, that we're at a loss for information, that to me is staggering. And and, and, uh, to your point, I could be wrong. We could be sitting here a week from now and going, whoa, there's there's been some other bombshell to drop. Somebody <laughs> or Apple and Amazon did find a, a, a coupler or, or something that looked like a coupler on a super micro board that they didn't know that they were they were plugging into their networks. And uh-oh, now this story has flipped the other way. That's an... That's entirely plausible. Well, the good news is um, we interview um, Stephen Chen from PFP later and... Yeah, you know, he's got a fix, right? A way to to find out if there's. Yes, I, and I would anybody out there listening that is still worried about this type of problem and is busy trying to tear down their own infrastructure to see if there are super micro boards. I would listen to our interview later. Yep. Uh, Stephen might have um, some technology to help you out on that front. So there was other news this week, believe it or not, uh, including uh, another social media security incident. Uh, Google has decided to shut down consumer use of its Google Plus social network after an internal privacy review discovered a flaw that exposed non-public profile data through its API. Uh, they actually discovered it in March. They found a flaw in Google Plus's People API that d- exposed data including name, email address, occupation, gender, and age. Uh, quoting Google, they said that they found no evidence that any developer was aware of the bug or any evidence that there was abuse of the API and that the profile data was misused. Social media networks have been really taking a beating lately. This announcement comes on the heels of recent security incidents at Facebook and Twitter. Jen, did you have at any point a Google Plus account? Well, I never worked for Google, so no. Okay. Did anyone else have those accounts? Well, no, I I will cop to it. I had a Google Plus account, you know, being in media, we're always looking at, you know, social media and whether they could help um, sort of help traffic and help the business overall. But this, I I think I had a Google Plus account in 2012. Okay. I should say, I guess I always had one because I signed up for one in 2012. I think I used it for two weeks. Okay. And and that was that. Because that was always the joke out there was that the only people who had them were... Right. Well, yeah, and it, it, you know, uh, ha ha ha, yeah, yeah. Nobody <laughs> used Google Plus, and and that that's funny to talk about. But at the same time, Google integrated a lot of their other products with Google Plus. And right. look, not everybody is aware, unless you are a Google engineer, on how those APIs 
all lined up. So that's why, like, ha, 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 yes, you didn't have a Google Plus account and whatever, but but if you put data into it, there's a possibility that your data could have been exposed in this. And that's why it's not dangerous. It's definitely something to look into and speaks to the greater landscape of, well, we don't always know where our data is going. Well, so then that leads to the other question. So by virtue of using Gmail, do you have a Google Plus? I mean, I can't speak to that with 100% certainty, but I know if there was at one point, if you had a Google account, so if you had a Gmail account, yeah. they, they tried to couple it together, and that was, you know, based to try to get more users into right. it, which Right, so I take it back, sense, I probably have I, a Google Plus account. You, you, you probably do, um, but it all depends on the information that you put into it. Like, right. obviously, I didn't curate it to the point where I was putting in my occupation or my gender or my age. But then again, look, uh, another part of this privacy review was kind of tweaking the way that Gmail collects information from Gmail accounts. So it could have maybe mined what my occupation is. It could have mined what my age is based on the emails that I were getting. So... I mean, certainly you've received an email where, like, I don't know, your wife or somebody is suggests some sort of product you guys should buy, and then or you see an ad I for get it. invitations right. from third-party services for birthday parties, right, or stuff like that. Yeah. So if I'm getting birthday party invites that are around, oh, this person's thirtieth birthday, this person's twenty-eighth birthday, this right. person's thirty-third birthday, they might not have an exact number. They have a pretty good range of where I'm at. So, again, this speaks to how tricky APIs can be mm-hmm. and uh, also just the vast quantity of data that we that is out there that is indirectly being uh, passed back and forth. So let's move on to another topic we like to talk about a lot, and that's MageCart. So RiskIQ researchers say that MageCart hackers compromise a third-party plugin giving them the ability to steal payment data from hundreds of online stores. The compromised app made by Shopper Approved lets merchants display customer ratings and reviews. The company boasts more than 7,000 customers, but the MageCard attack would only have them succeed more merchants had the plugin on the checkout page. RiskIQ says that because of the threats like this, online stores should isolate third-party apps from the checkout page. Because if they're compromised, you are compromised. Greg, it looks like you were right on MageCart staying around. Yeah, uh, they are uh, an interesting group. And actually, I don't think I should categorize it like that because RiskIQ gave uh, some more information on how exactly MageCart works. So it's, it's a federated set of groups working together to go after online retailers or e-commerce or anywhere where you could pull uh, payment information from. It looks to be about five or six different groups that are constantly updating malware or updating attacks or sharing advice on how to compromise these sites. And this is, you know, standard cybercrime. This is the way that it works. This is the way we talked about Fin7 again Mm -hmm. last week. Fin7 also was a distributed federated group in that, you know, we might have, the U.S. might have arrested the, the top of the food chain on that, but it's just... They're, they're going to re-up. And with MageCart, it, it looks like they are growing in 
the amount of information they are sharing back and forth in order to compromise sites. So this is a group that should be on everybody's radar if you are collecting payment information, uh, whether, you know, it's a, you are a small Etsy shop that is relying on some, some third-party payment applications, or if it's, uh, you know, a bigger retailer that, I mean, We've reported on it before. British Airways and Ticketmasters. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is, yeah. These aren't mom and pop shops. Right. These are big companies that should have a soccer or some third party help in securing their applications. So this is definitely something that everybody needs to worry about if they are collecting payment information on their websites. Um, and if you happen to be an online merchant, um, go, I guess, what, three weeks ago. Um, Greg and I interviewed um, NSA. It might have been even longer than that, but definitely, yeah. Go back and listen to our interview with Adam from NS8. This is what uh, NS8 protects against, Mm -hmm. against disputed charges, having your third-party payment systems manipulated. Definitely worth going back and checking out that interview because Adam has some great advice on how to guard against this stuff. So turning back into the public sector, the Government Accountability Office has released a scathing report on the cyber vulnerabilities of the Pentagon's weapon systems that lays bare how penetration testers were able to breach these systems with relative ease. Many of the testers said they could change or delete data, and in one case, they downloaded 100 gigabytes from a weapon system. From 2012 to 2017, Defense Department testers, quote, routinely found mission-critical cyber vulnerabilities in nearly all weapon systems that were under development. The GAO attributed the slack cybersecurity to defense officials' belated recognition of the challenge of weapon system cybersecurity. Jen, of all the things to protect, this should be at the top of the DOD's list, right? It really should be. And did I read in your article that there were other, probably many, many other vulnerabilities that weren't detected through this? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, this report was not, not great. Not great for the DOD. Uh, the fact that this has spanned um, so many years, from 2012 to 2017, that's a millennia in cybersecurity. Like, it would be one thing <laughs> if they came out and said, okay, from 2010 to 2014, they were pretty bad. But we're talking up until last year. Like, that's no bueno. Like, you, you got to figure out a way to guard against these systems because this is the type of stuff that when we are out in the battlefield – I mean, this is what's going to be targeted. I mean, it just sounds like we've sort of pointed out what's wrong and then have come out and said, and there's potentially hundreds of other things that are wrong. And I don't know, aren't we just sort of giving a roadmap to our enemies? Yeah, well, not just so much uh, a roadmap. Well, I, that's that's part of it, but also just a target. Like, you have a missile system. Like, I'm, I'm befuddled that I'm even talking about this. <laughs> If you have a missile system that needs to be protected, and obviously what missile system doesn't need to be protected, how have you not done that? Like, how have right. you not gone to the yeah. defense industrial base and said, guys, this is woeful. Like, man up. Figure this out. Protect mm. it. This is this is not just a, a, a database or HR functionality. Like, this is loss of life criticality here. Fix it. There's, there's really no other way to say it. Yeah, so let's move on to something slightly different. So the Food and Drug Administration has issued a cybersecurity advisory for two pieces of hardware that link to cardiac devices like pacemakers and defibrillators, citing a vulnerability that could allow unauthorized access to programmers. Could allow unauthorized access to the programmers. 
The FDA said it confirmed that when the two models of programmers, which are made by Minneapolis-based Medtronic, have an internet connection, authorized unauthorized users could exploit the vendor's network to change the programmer's functionality. Medtronic said it reviewed the vulnerabilities with the FDA and security researchers and concluded that internet-connected software updates for their programmers may introduce risks that, if not mitigated, could result in harm to patients. Greg, I know that weapon systems flares are dangerous, but it seems this is beyond that. And what are we doing with internet connections in our... (laughs) Yeah, uh, this is not great. Um, And this has been a topic that has been discussed for a couple months now because out at Black Hat, uh, there was a demonstration by a couple researchers on how a hacker could do exactly this, run malicious firmware on one of the programmers and then make life-threatening changes to systems that are used to keep people alive. Um, I mean, the security researchers, uh, shout out to Billy Rios and Jonathan Butts, uh, they disclosed these vulnerabilities to Medtronic in January 17, and then it's taken this long for stuff to happen. So good on them for letting the company know about this and good on the company for coming around because obviously better late than never, but this goes to show like you need to be a little bit faster when it comes to stuff like this. Let's back up here. We're talking about a link to cardiac devices and how they're one step away from being internet connected themselves. I mean, I might be different. I, I'm in good health, but if I ever need the uh, use of a pacemaker or anything like that, like I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the person that is going to be like, um, we're going to make sure that this comes from company A and not company D because company D is not protecting the signals that my heart is going off. I mean, this is some spy novel stuff come to life like that this should not happen at all <laughs> i'm just sort of sitting here a little bit in, in shock yeah one. because you know this took us um some researcher is it black hat or defcon that this came out of black hat black hat i mean you would think that, that the fda would have been thinking about this before you would think that the company who produced it was thinking about it before and then you would think just given the virtue of it having an internet connection that somebody was thinking about this and it wouldn't have been on the market. Right. And not that the FDA isn't paying attention to this, but I think that it would help if the FDA was weighing a lot harder on these companies. Because, look, this just goes back to the whole security versus convenience discussion that we have when we talk about any sort of consumer products. Only, I think that there needs to be a little more gravity put to these situations. Because, look, yeah, they are consumer products. We're talking about healthcare, Loss of life. Yes. Loss of yeah. life. That, that can't that can't happen that it, it, it can't happen on a number of levels including one being you don't want to be a company that is creating the stuff and not thinking about it and then you're you're run out of business because people are dying because you right. didn't encrypt yeah. your your stuff you don't want to have that happen well we're lucky I mean, that stuff, it was yeah th- th- this stuff is hard enough just from a technological standpoint because medicine isn't an exact science so why would you want to make it that much harder on yourself by not protecting your stuff? Right, yeah. Just, uh, yeah, just really kind of a shocking development that it took this long to get to that point. So finally, a Chinese intelligence official has been extradited to the United States to face charges of economic espionage. The DOJ announced Wednesday, 
Yanjun Zhu, a Chinese Ministry of State security official, is accused of trying to steal trade secrets from multiple American aerospace and aviation companies. For more than four years, he targeted leading aviation companies, including GE Aviation for one. Analysts and U.S. officials say this case is further evidence that after an apparent lull following the 2015 U.S.-China agreement not to commit economic espionage, the Chinese government has vigorously resumed such activity. So, Jen, do the companies that you work with and the companies that you talk to and the companies that the companies you oversee that they're protecting, did they ever think that China had actually gone away when it came to hacking and economic espionage? Of course not. Of and that's what's not. so striking yeah. to me is that there was a lot of news around this announcement this week and everybody went, oh, the obama G deal is over. We've been reporting for like a year that they never really went away, at least in terms of the hacking, that it went away for a little bit. But once the rhetoric started up against China and trade wars were being talked about and now we're in those trade wars like everybody was like well there goes that deal like they're going to be popping our defense industrial base and stealing our ip again so but tell us a little bit more about this story because did i read that um basically professors were being and company officials were being invited over to teach at a university and give classes so that was part of it This guy paid experts working at companies to not necessarily be academic, but just come over and give presentations on what was going on in in their business, whatever their business may have been. Um, But yes, when they came over, uh, the trade secrets mysteriously disappeared or somehow came into the uh, possession of Chinese authorities, which, again, they were doing long before the U.S.-China agreement. Um, was inked in 2015. So, yeah, I mean, it just speaks to, look, this is China's MO. This is what they do. They try to get American IP and American trade secrets on the cheap. And I would not be surprised if we see, one, a lot more of these cases being talked about, which means a lot more arrests, and two, a lot more companies being popped by Chinese-based hackers because we all know there's a trade war going on and the rhetoric has been pretty ugly on that front. So this is a quick and easy, pretty painless way for China to do what they have to do in order to keep up on the economic front. Nobody, I would say overall, nobody should be surprised that this I mean, not even stuff a little is still bit. going on. Yeah, not even a little bit. Um, but it's also amazing um, what people will tell you when they think you're a student. I mean, I, you know, when I was a student, when I was in college, um, I, I was working, helping spin technologies out of the university um, with professors. And I would say that if I called a company and said, hey, I'm, I'm analyzing this, I'm, you know, a student at Virginia Tech or wherever, people would tell me things that they probably wouldn't tell other people or just maybe too much information because they're like, oh, student, I remember when I was in college. And that's why, and I'm sure that we do it too, but that's why you're high-level nation states like to put their spies in as students Students. or at the university level Mm -hmm. because it is such a fountain of knowledge. So when it comes to what is going on and and like research and development and what's going to be new in the economy, a lot of that stuff comes from the academic base. 
So yeah, I, I totally understand where you're coming from on that. And I'm sure there are spy agencies that have sure. been yeah. relying on that for decades. So yeah, again, this is spies are going to spy. Like this is <laughs> this is this is what happens. Spies are going to spy. So now to our interview with Stephen Chen. But before we get to that, I'd like to point everybody to a project that launched on CyberScoop this week. Uh, so much of cybersecurity goes beyond the ones and zeros, be it through government policy, private sector innovation, technology startups, or security research. People from all walks of life are pushing the industry to keep up with technology's growing impact in every facet of our lives. So we wanted to acknowledge some of the efforts of a select group of people that are working in this facet. Uh, so this week we announced the Leet List. The Leet List is an all-encompassing list that selects individuals from all walks of the security industry to speak about the impact they're having on how society projects itself and protects itself in the digital realm. Uh, we talked to people like Keith Alexander and his new startup, Ironnet, sort of the future, what's going on there. We talked to Katie Masuris, who is a longtime expert in vulnerability research and bug bounties, sort of how she, she sees the world moving forward. We talked to congressmen, we talked to CEOs, we talked to senators. Do check it out. The interviews are definitely worth your time, definitely very worthwhile. We dive into what people think about security by design, what people think about automation, where cybersecurity is headed, not just in the next year, but in the next three years and the next five years. So check it out online. It is on cyberscoop.com, or you can check it out on Twitter, hashtag list 2018 We hope it inspires you to think beyond the binaries and drive people to make more significant impacts on security in the future. Now to our interview with Stephen Chen. Check it out. Okay, joining us today is Stephen Chen, the founder and CEO of PFP Cybersecurity. Stephen comes to us to talk about this bombshell Bloomberg report that everybody keeps talking about. So Stephen, uh, thanks for joining us today. Talk to us a little bit about what PFP does. Well, thank you for having me. PFP use uh, analog signal and AI to detect anomaly uh, at a very low level. Um, usually, people come to us, they say, Stephen, you cannot touch my device, and you cannot load anything to my system, and we don't want a hacker to be able to tell they've been detected. That's what we do for legacy devices. Then we have a roadmap to be in billions of devices by scaling with semiconductor chips. PAP has recently been selected by the plug and play accelerating program in Silicon Valley out of a thousand or more cybersecurity companies. I mean, congratulations on that. So with specifically what you're guarding against, it, it, you're talking about very low level, you're, we're talking about on the hardware level, correct? There is uh, a terminology called memory-based attack. Okay. What it is is it includes attack at hardware and firmware level. It's difficult for most of the current tools to detect because they don't look deep enough. We have a solution 
we look at a layer of physics. When hackers move electrons differently than the normal way, we will consider that's an anomaly. Okay. And the terminology bare metal security has been there for a while, particularly for data center people. And when you buy servers from overseas, you worry what has been on the server. And we have heard story that motherboard brought in behind the firewall. You turned it down, and you know malware on the motherboard got activated and redirect traffic. Right. So we have heard those story. And so our customers worry about hacking at a hardware level, at a firmware level. You might heard the lowjack attack, correct? Which is a case, the hacker attack, the firmware or BIOS, right? When you turn on your PC before it loads Windows, it loads BIOS, and once the if the hacker got in at that level. You can change your hard drive. You can reload Windows. It will always be there because it's in the memory. So that's a good example. So we've been asked by our customer to do scan of boards like that uh, or a BIOS attack without touching the device. So on a hardware level, and, and going back to the Bloomberg story. If somebody were to approach you, again, hypothetically, it's just the caveat overall for this conversation. If hypothetically somebody were to come to you and say, hey, we've seen this Bloomberg story and we're worried about our servers because our servers contained super micro hardware, how would you go about detecting this attack that has been written about in Bloomberg? So we usually will turn on the system and we need a gold sample. We need to know when something is normal, the Buddha sequence, what it look like, right? And we look at thousands of features with our AI tool. And then when we see a, a board like this, right, you know, typically we'll see there's a hardware change. At the very beginning, we couldn't tell what has been changed. Then we look at the Buddha sequence, right? For example, we have a demo video uh, online showing we have a Cisco router, similar tempering, simple knock, getting to the firmware, you boot up, the Buddha sequence is different when you're doing your thing. There's something else in the background looking at sniffing the information, right? So we'll be able to tell, hey, something else is running in the background because it's, it shouldn't be there, and you cannot see it from the network traffic because it's on the board. And you cannot see it by checking the file system because it's not in the, in the file system. Right? So at that point, we will see, oh, something is different. And then we will get into the forensic mode and we'll try to narrow down which part of the motherboard Right, by looking at electric, electron, uh, EMI, electromagnetic emission, we can localize where on the motherboard there is a different component. And then we can bring other tool in 
like the digital scan and to find out what's really in that memory chip. So, so essentially you are sort of looking at an initial snapshot of sort of power usage and memory usage of a motherboard or of different components and are then seeing any changes to that and thus detecting maybe there's some chip there that shouldn't be there. Yeah, something like that. We look at the, the, the system, right? So we can look at EMI, air gap, non-contact, or we can just look at the power going to that device. And we do, you know, we are a bunch of signal processing uh, professionals. So we do signal processing before we use AI tool like everybody else, right? Then we use AI tool to really go to fine grain analysis. And so we'll be able to see that the system is doing differently in time sequence or a different event, very tiny stuff. And we will come out and usually will we'll come out and tell you, hey, at 99.99% confidence. And the other thing we do is we can do that in a matter of 100 milliseconds, right? Because give you an example, I, you know, at plug and play, I talked to a bank. He said, Stephen, giving us enough time, we can tell our ATM machine got hacked. But we want it to be fast enough so before the hacker can get a cash dispense from the ATM machine, we want to stop it, right? Instead of you telling me a week later, hey, you got hacked. I know that. So what we do is we can detect in machine time. You can say that's millisecond or faster. And we don't have to touch the device. And we do deep analysis. So with the details that you have seen in the Bloomberg story, and, and since everybody is talking about it, I'm, I'm interested to hear, has anybody approached you to be like, um, can you guys kind of help us out and sort of comb over our systems to see if any of this is on there, whether it's the hardware attack or the firmware attacks that have been written about in the past week? Well, first, let me say we have been involved in something like this. That morning when the news hit, I got 10 emails in the first hour. So when you say yes, have people, so people have definitely come to you and said, can you look over our boards to see if this is in there right now? Uh, yes. Um, the fact that we have been talking to people in the past, they didn't believe this type of things will affect them, right? Because this used to be nobody but us, this terminology, you know? So, uh, but now they saw the news, timing is great, and they came to us and said, wow, didn't you talk about this? Please. Okay, so when you say this, do you mean just this type of attack or or this very attack? Because I want to be really particular here because I, if, if you're saying that what has happened in the Bloomberg story is actually occurring, that's, you know, bigger than just saying, okay, no, supply chain attacks specifically on implanted chips and implanted firmware is something that we're guarding against all the time. Uh, so to clarify, we didn't get a call say, Stephen, can you help us with this super micro okay. board? Okay. Right? But we got calls say, hey, Stephen, I have similar devices. And so, you know, for example, a firm told me, Stephen, I have 10,000 offices. 
and I have the gateway, I have the printer, I have mobile, and I have computer, I have server. How can you help me scan all those devices, right? Because if you look at what happened in the last three months, FBI came out, warned everybody, people like you and I, so you need to recycle, power cycle, reset your home gateway. Right, you're right. Because, right. you know, Russian-sponsored hacker has hacked network devices like that. Right. right. So that's one. Then, I think it was two weeks ago, this LoJack news, right. you know, hit. Right. So people say, wow, I didn't know I, I can reload window and I can replace my hard drive and still be there. And now people look at this super micro case you know, the attack itself, I don't consider it as new, but the deliver, delivery mechanism from supply chain, for most many people, you know, that hit home, right? So if you look at a combination of all those, and companies said, hey, Stephen, we don't want to read um, Bloomberg that we got hacked. What, <laughs> how can you help us to prevent that from happening? Have you actually heard um, anyone sort of verify that they had the super micro sort of chips that were bad in their systems? Uh, you know, I have several friends, and they uh, were involved in the story. And, you know, so we have discussion, and they told me they went through uh, a sort of verification and legal review mm-hmm. so it's plausible so the plausibility of it let's talk about that like the example that you just gave like some company calls you up and say I have 10,000 offices with God knows what hardware in the endpoints and then we talk about my data centers and we talk about all the technology that I mm-hmm. leverage how do you convince everybody that this is something that needs to be in their risk profile because obviously your company goes out and finds these needles in the haystacks through your technology but how do you convince a security team but also how do you convince business wings and executives that no along with protecting against phishing and protecting the application layer that this is also something that we need to think about when we think about cybersecurity holistically so I usually uh, brief uh, companies like that with um, search from DHS. Okay. And we use you know public domain information, including the Supermicro, and then we'll do a demo, and we'll show how the attack can come can be delivered, and then how we can detect it, and how we can provide. Uh, alerts to their existing infrastructure could be um, the security ops center, uh, etc. And I remember at least two occasions recently, people said, so what's the difference from phishing, right? And I said, well, that doesn't remove the importance of anti-phishing solutions, but you just need to pay attention and particularly looking at the trend, I think was Sentinel One or uh, another endpoint security company published a report talk about this fileless attack 
or memory-based attack doubled in the first six months in 2018. Okay. Right? That's endpoint is what people are familiar with. If you go back, you know, Stuxnet attacked the Iranian industrial control for, you know, uh, the, the Siemens uh, right. PLC. And that's something going to the memory of the PLC, went to sleep 99% of the time, woke up and do the attack, then went back to sleep, right? So we've been tested by our customer, for example. We can detect Stuxnet when it's in sleep mode because there must be a wake-up mechanism. Okay. In that case, a counter, a timer, or in some other cases, look for a command from the network. So we detect something like that in the background. It shouldn't be there, right? Another example is uh, Mirai. It's an attack on IP cameras. Right. So first is the malware went into those devices hidden in memory mm-hmm. and waiting for a command from network to trigger a DDoS attack, right? So by looking at either the emission, uh, EMI, or the power line behavior, we can tell well, something is in the memory, it's checking for something, right? So we have been working on all those scenarios. Interesting. So can PFP then sort of certify that a company is sort of safe from these sort of attacks? Well, we can help them do the scan. I wouldn't say certified. Uh, that will require uh, an organization to do that. Uh, and yes, and that's what we've been doing. Uh, providing tools, and you know we've been funded by uh, DoD, um, DHS, mm-hmm. and we currently have a six six million dollar DAPA prime contracts, uh, looking at better AI tool and better sensing tool to perform uh, tasks like this, right, and. You know, DAPA initially said, you know, they want something uh, for low resources devices. What okay. are those? IOTs. And they don't have the resource to run a window, a Linux base, you know, all those tools. So they want the program is called LADS, L-A-D-S, Leverage Analog Domain for Security. Okay. So by looking at analog signal, radiation from the device, or power, they want to be able to tell changes in hardware, firmware, configuration, and data. And example, you know, we talk about hardware attack, we talk about firmware attack. In some cases, like configuration, someone changed the setting of the location mode on your mobile phone. We want to be able to see it to remind the user hey, have you authorized such a change? If you say you did, we ignore that. And if you say you didn't, and we tell you, right? Now you know, hey, someone is trying to do something. And after detection, then we give user different options to do remediation or prevention. So 
I'm, I'm interested if we could dive a little bit more into this. I mean, you gave a good explanation there, but that seemed to be very software-based on the IoT side. So I'm wondering how the DARPA project and, and what you're doing contributes to making just better AI. Like, I'm interested to hear how does hardware security help make better AI? Um, we use AI. It doesn't make... Uh, hardware security itself doesn't make better AI. Okay. Right. So the DAPA investment is investing better AI tool to perform the analysis. So we look at those signals, and we can increase our confidence and speed in detecting hardware attack. So. I'm a Virginia Tech Hokie, and I understand the origin of this technology is from there. Can you talk a little bit about sort of that process of developing at Virginia Tech and sort of spinning it out to a company? Yes, uh, that's, a, that's a great story. So I sold a cybersecurity company, 3ETI, back in 2006. We deliver, uh, it's an SBIR success story. We got $300 million SBIR funding and deployed to all the naval bases and several classes of naval ships. And when Intel did announced their wireless on their laptop and their customers, particularly in the federal space, told them they couldn't use it because it was considered insecure. So Intel found 3ETI, we made it, and we passed all the certification and validation required, and Cisco was a reseller, etc. Around 2005, we heard some stories that the bad guy was found behind the firewall. Right? In the past, you assume you're safe behind the firewall. Mm -hmm. When you got out, you use VPN, you use authentication, and you use encryption to protect yourself. So at that time, we heard story that bad guys were behind the firewall. We didn't quite know what it was, and we have some idea. So after I sold the company in 2006, I served as public company CTO, M&A for two years, learned a lot in you know, acquisition, non-organic growth, etc. And at 2008, I started looking at what else I want to do. Right? So besides joining Blue Ventures, become an investor. And so I went to Virginia Tech, my friend Jeff Reed, doc, a professor at the Electrical Engineering Department, and said, Jeff, we've been friends and we work on programs several times. We work well together, let's do something together, right? So we started looking for technologies at Virginia Tech. I ran into this technology called power fingerprinting at Virginia Tech. Okay. And it was designed to detect baseband attack of software defined radio, which is in our cell phone, etc. And so I saw it, I said, wow, this is it. This could detect anomaly of devices, right? So I licensed the technology, I formed a company, licensed the technology, got the professor and his PhD student, Carlos Aguirre, uh -huh. now is our CTO, you know, out. 
and we started this company in 2010, you know, I told the team at the time, uh, when, before we narrowed down the device, uh, the technology, I said, well, I'm looking for something that's patentable. It already have a working prototype, it works. And the inventor, inventors have to come with it, right? Because a lot of time you heard a story, just license the technology and it died because the enthusiasm, the commitment, it's not there. Okay. So that's how we, we started. And so even before that time, a, an army officer went to Virginia Tech and started the first generation in 2006, Jeff and Carlos improved it from a signature-based solution to a anomaly detection solution in 2008, and we brought it out. I tell you, the technology initially was very complicated because how we show it. But now you look at the math, it's really simple, right? I lost a lot of sleep before we got patents. <laughs> okay. And luckily in 2017, we got five patents. Oh, great. And then we got three more. And so one of our competitors in Michigan, you know, they kind of went silent after we got the patents. Even Cisco fired a patent application in this field and their application was rejected because of our patent. Right, you know, you heard of side channel attack. We look at emission of a electronic device from maybe hundred feet away. We could tell the AES crypto calculation, or we can attack a chip by looking at the emission or power, and we can tell. So that technology has been used by different organizations for decades. Okay. What PAP did is unique is we took that proven technology, we used it for defense. And then we consider all the high volume use cases and we patent it. For example, if someone changed the BIOS in a PC, and using this method to detect, we patent it. Or if you have a programmable chip, like a field programmable gate array with team with Xilinx, if a hacker come in, change the logic or change the firmware, we patent it, right? So we, we did that back in 2010. Wow, wow. Really, really interesting uh, sort of uh, generation story there on your company. Um, so, on to curiosity, we close our interviews with a random question. So, totally off the script here. I'm wondering if you could have dinner with somebody famous or celebrity or some notable person, living or dead, who would it be? You know, when you talk about celebrity, um, right, I will consider Ron Gula is a cybersecurity celebrity. Oh, you got to do better than that. No, you got to do better than that. Do better than Ron. <laughs> I'm sure Ron would appreciate that. Ron's going to be on the show soon, but uh, you know, I will aim higher. I will say Tom Cruise because okay. of the Top Gun movie. The reason why is the movie got my son Mitchell to wanted to be, and he is a naval aviator. Oh, 
Wow, okay. That's awesome. And I have tried to convince Mitchell that he should do something with Dad, but I have not been successful. <laughs> if I could do what Tom Cruise did, I want to ask him, right? So maybe he can help me to convince Mitchell, besides flying airplane for Navy, do something else than with Dad. <laughs> great. It's great, great. Sir. Stephen, really appreciate your insight. Thanks for helping us out kind of dissect this Bloomberg story. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you. Thanks again to Stephen. And if Supermicro or any other hardware company is listening, you might want to give him a call. It might, he might be able to help you out. Or maybe hook him up with a dinner with Tom Cruise. I'm sure he'd like to break up his day and talk about anything else but more hardware security. That's it for this week. We'll see you around DC Cyber Week next week. As always, stay curious. <laughs>